then um, we have plenty of problems. We have, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And um, our church is not a perfect church, but, but we are very blessed. Um, I'm going to just give you two other churches, Grace and Peace. Um, Grace and Peace is a church that's in downtown Asheville, uh, Jonathan Inman, who's um, been in the presbytery as long as I have, uh, maybe longer. He's been ordained longer, but he's um, been here uh, about the same time. Anyway, um, you know, he, he's been laboring, uh, and I think being a good pastor, you know, I don't see everything he does, but I'm not sure I would. We were talking yesterday, and um, but he's at a place where he's wondering, there's, there's probably less than uh, less than 50 people in his congregation. And, you know, to labor for 25 years and to just think that your congregation is just, you know, just barely making it. So he's got a lot of questions. He's even questioning himself as a pastor, you know, uh, um, maybe my, my focus has been wrong. Do I need to get out of the way? Let someone else do it? I mean, just, and that's not, uh, I don't think he's done anything you know, wrong, I just think that he's just struggling with those things. If you struggle for that long and your church is not growing, it's going to be difficult. Um, and then Providence, this is in Murphy, this is Mary's brother, David. Uh, he's got a small church. I don't know how many people are in his church, but relatively small. And um, talking to him a little bit, and actually I talked to Mary this past week, and he, David has a, a daughter, um, named Callie, she is a, um, uh, well, she's finished her freshman year at Covenant, and so she would be going back her sophomore year. She's on the cross-country team and as a runner and those sorts of things. But, you know, here's David struggling in another small church, trying to see it grow, trying, this is where Jim and Edie uh, Escudere are now, and I hope that they're a help to him. Uh, so, you know, you have them going, and and then his daughter comes down with a, a leak. She probably just fell on her bottom at some point, not even that serious of a fall. But somehow it created a leak in her spinal fluid. And so they go in and they, they, uh, they patch it. It doesn't fix it. They patch it again. It doesn't fix it. They go in and do another surgery. Still doesn't fix it. They put a third patch on, as far as I understand, Still not fixed, and she is dealing, she can't hardly even stand up, she's, she's, um, they bought her a car, she can't even drive the car, right? I mean, and so here's, here's a pastor who I think is doing a great job, struggling to try to see a small church grow, um, and in God's providence, he gives uh, him and his family, his wife Amy and their family, just a really trying, difficult um, you know, time-consuming doctors, and, you know, here he is trying to just make it, you know, and then all this happens. And, and those kind of things just, just you know, make me wonder, you know, God, what are you doing? You know, this is, <laughs> why are you doing it this way? Um, and so I had the opportunity to pray for David and Callie uh, yesterday, and, uh, but they're, both of those are on my mind, you know, and, and it's, it's not like God makes life easy when you set your heart on doing what's right. It, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And so uh, I want to be thankful for the good things and uh, uh, thankful for these men and we'll pray for them. And, uh, but it's just, uh, you know, uh, life is not easy. So, uh, and if you would remember 
Callie, uh, remember, it's just, you know, when you're that young and that healthy, she's a very young, healthy woman, and to uh, love the Lord and to, to just have this happening, you just, you just struggle. So I'm going to pray. Father, I do thank you. Uh, we all have our struggles. We all have our challenges. But I'm thankful for the people who are here. I'm thankful for um, the church that we have uh, and uh, the place that you've called me to serve. And it, it, it's good. Um, Lord, I, I'm not a perfect pastor. I don't do all the things that I could be doing, and I certainly don't love and follow you uh, to perfection. Um, but I'm thankful, Lord. I'm thankful for my wife and uh, for Jenny and for this church. Um, and I just, I pray for my fellow pastors, Jonathan and David. Um, and I pray that you would help Jonathan uh, to press on, to uh, continue to uh, point his flock to Christ and help guide them through the word of God and uh, Lord that you would bless them. I also pray for David and ask that you would um, you would help him as he has fatigue. Uh, Lord this could be multiplied in many people. I think of David Doster and his wife Julie with cancer and uh, Cody Ray with his uh, daughter uh, Belle and seizures. And um, But Lord, I pray for your pastors. I pray that you would watch over them and protect them from sin and despair and help them to keep believing that you are going to use your spirit to change hearts and build your church. And I just thank you for David and thank you for Jonathan and ask that you would uh, bless them in particular today as they serve their flocks. In Jesus' name, amen. Mary, did I describe Callie? Okay, good. She knows better than I do, but that's kind of how he described it to us yesterday. So... Um, James chapter 1, we'll start there. That's where we finished yesterday, last Sunday. <clears throat> 13 to 15. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It does seem to talk about in this passage that there is a progression of sin um, but I think what's, uh, what I want to stress is that the desire itself is evil, um, not just the acting out of the desire. The desire itself is evil. Um, also, just a quick word. Um, the word for tempt and the word for test uh, in the Greek is the same word. 
So um, God certainly tests us all the time. And I would, I would uh, say that the two examples in Grace and Peace Church and David Hina, those are tests, right? You give your life to something and then you, and then you uh, don't see it doing what you want, then it tests you, right? It's going to test your faith. It's so God is constantly giving us tests. What it means when it says that God doesn't tempt is he doesn't take, he doesn't like put into your heart an evil desire. That's, God doesn't actually do that. Like he doesn't actually take evil and put it into your heart. How could he, right? He's not evil in any way, so he doesn't do that. But he, also, he does bring situations into our life which often test us. And, that, or, and sometimes he'll even remove his, his presence so that we, we are tested too. I mean, there's all, that's all in our confession kind of stuff. But I just think that's important in this passage to make that distinction. Um, which is why we say in the Lord's Prayer, what, what's the prayer we say regarding temptation? <laughs> lead us not into temptation. The, rec- the recognition is if God did lead us into the worst temptation, we would fail. Right? Who, who was led into the strongest and most potent temptation possible and didn't fail? Jesus, right? And when he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. So we're basically saying, oh dear Lord, don't do to us exactly what you did to Jesus, right? You know, so give me a little bit, temper that a little bit. Uh, only give me so much temptation, provide ways out, you know, help me to overcome it, those sorts of things. So anyway, but just sometimes understanding all that can get confusing. Um, coveting cuts at the heart of our acceptance of God's sovereign provision in our lives. Think about that. Coveting cuts at the heart of God's sovereign provision for our lives. Um, We believe that God orders all things. And so in that, every every aspect of your life, the degree of your health, the, the, uh, uh, your intelligence, your, um, your relationships, uh, the church that you're in, the pastor that you have, the job that you have, the amount of retirement that you have, the loved ones that you're carrying, every detail of your life has been orchestrated by God. And so coveting actually... Uh, looks at God's sovereign provision, and then is not satisfied with what God has given in the moment, okay? Um, And it takes it a step further. It then says, what someone else has, I can take for myself, okay? The word for coveting is basically desire. And that, that can be confusing too, because... According to a uh, Buddhist or maybe a Hindu, what's the key to life? How do you how do you be happy? Yeah, you just you get rid of all desire. Okay, 
Um, and so you could see this if, like, at what point does desire become coveting? That's actually a, you know, it, it, on one level you think, oh, that's really easy to say. But on another level, when you're looking at your own heart, it can be very challenging to know when my desires become coveting. Okay? Uh, if it's true that God has placed into every Christian a desire for eternal bliss, right? This is the promises of the covenant, right? If he's put that there, you are in some way, your present experience is not that, is it? And so there's going to be some unfulfilled unfulfilled desire in your life. Okay? And so when you have unfulfilled desire, you have yearnings. Right? You have hopes. Right? All those kind of things are desires. When do those desires become coveting? Something that's evil. Okay? So this is, these are the questions. So I think Kevin DeYoung says it well. The law against coveting is not a law against feelings. Okay? Think about that in your own life. Uh, you're not married? You want to be married. You don't have kids? You want to have kids. You have kids? You want to have better kids. Right? <laughs> you know, all these things go on, right? Uh, so... There are feelings that you have. You are made up of feelings. It's a big part of who you are, right? Um, Kevin DeYoung uh, talks again about uh, C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis is always very profound. Uh, the Bible says our problem is not that we desire things, but that we desire the wrong things, or we desire good things in a wrong way. I think that's a pretty good... Now, either you desire something, you're not desiring this, you've come up with some other, I think the, the Bible just really, really just says any temporal pleasure, you know, the pleasures of the moment, and you've taken your, your heart off of this, and you've put it here, okay, so that's like desiring the wrong thing, or you could be desiring the good thing in a wrong way. As C.S. Lewis famously puts it, the problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. I love this. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. All right, this is the holiday by the sea. This is the mud pie. And the child is just continuing to slop in the mud and say, this is what I want. We are far too easily pleased Right, we just keep going back to this. Um, we want fleeting worldly pleasures, but God doesn't say to us, shame on you for wanting things. He says, I can give you something much better and more lasting than all the world's trivial trinkets. Um, so there you go. That's uh, Coveting is, is desiring something that's not good, or it's, it's maybe um, desiring to get what's good in a wrong way. You know, those are 
things that I think are distinction that's good. Um, and I would also say that the desire, the, the command to not covet is placed into the context of loving your neighbor. So let's go back to um, Exodus 20 and look at the command itself. Exodus 20, verse 17. So you can pretty much conceive coveting as just like your personal desires, and and that's that's like one aspect of what coveting is. But I think in the command, it actually is, is placed in the context of love towards your neighbor. Um, so, uh, where's our microphone? We have a microphone. Chris, would you like to read Exodus twenty seventeen for me? Uh, here comes the microphone for you. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, good. So how, uh, uh, define for me coveting using language of love for your neighbor. How would you, how would you put it in a positive statement? Uh, what should we be doing rather than coveting? Yeah, good. Say that again with the mic for me. That's great. We should want what's best for our neighbor. Right. Uh, We should want what's best for our neighbor. We should be happy for the blessings given to our neighbor. Right? I mean, we should be like, wow, that's really great. (laughs) Instead of jealous, wanting what we want, or to take, we want what they have so that we could have it. <laughs> just being happy for them, right? That's, so coveting is not just desiring something that's wrong. It actually is selfish, right? It's putting your desires above the desires of the other person. So on one, oh, go ahead, Peter. that's a great so so the question is if if you see someone that has something and then you want what they have and then you go out and get one keeping up with the joneses is that a type of coveting well um it could be but it doesn't have to be so uh, the bible constantly is is putting others uh, around us as models for ourselves. So if if you're kind of a lazy person and you see that, you know, the Joneses have that car and you would like to have that car and you say, you know what, I'm going to become a better person, I'm going to work harder so I can afford the car, then you're using what they have as a good thing, a motivation for you to say, I can do this. Okay, that's not, I wouldn't call that coveting. But if you look at the Joneses and say, you know, how can I figure out how to take what they have? That's coveting, right? Or maybe I can't be happy until I have what they have. That discontentment is is a part of it. Yeah, Mm mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, Robin. Thank you. Man, I like the fast, quick. Um, what if, like, take the car situation. <clears throat> um, so you're not, like, you're not, like, I want his car. I'm going to go get his car. I'm right. You're not feeling that way. And maybe you don't, you know, you know, I can't work hard enough to buy myself one or whatever. But, um, <laughs> <clears throat> but what if it can turn into our hearts a, like, we might not even recognize the coveting or the jealousy, but it can twist something in our hearts about our neighbor themselves. Like, Keep going. Like, how can he afford that car? He doesn't make enough money to afford that car. What? What? I mean, it can. We can create scenarios. Judgmentalism. That, yeah, in our mind about just our neighbor himself, his person, in regards to something that he might have. Yes, wanting to tear them down so that we can feel better about our own condition. Right. <laughs> Resentment. That's right. Resentment and bitterness. That's, that's very good. If your neighbor has that car and you want it so bad, but what if it's not the best thing for your family? Uh-huh. Like it's causing you to put money into something instead of something you should be putting the money in. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. So coveting has just a, um, it has like a God word uh, just faith element to it. It has a um, it has a love to neighbor element, right? Um, and uh, the, and the last one, I, I just think it has a God element. Period. So this is this. These look the same, but this is like trusting in God's providence, what He's giving me, kind of thing. And this one is going to be more focused on God Himself. So, um, who is the source of happiness? Simple softball question, right? God is the source, right? So, anything that you desire is, is not able in itself to produce happiness. If I could remember this all the time, I would be a much better man. God is the source of happiness. So if you, you think about it in terms of like, you know, you're drinking your favorite drink. The, the, the amount of joy and pleasure that you could have in drinking your favorite drink is not really just you and the drink. God is the one who works in you to be able to enjoy whatever it is. He is the source of all happiness, which is why when we choose to just chase after the thing as if the thing itself will bring about our happiness, we're, it's really denial of God completely because you're just saying oh forget god i can just go choose this and i'll make it'll make me happy it is it is absolutely and this is what calvin says we're idol factories 
So recognizing that God is the source of happiness. And if you flesh this out, even in limited levels of happiness, let's say a non-Christian couple enjoys a relatively nice marriage and they're happy in that marriage. Why are they happy in that marriage? Only because God in his common grace has given them some degree of happiness in that marriage. It's not the marriage itself, right? So this is this idea of coveting really does come down to um, that God is who we really need. He is the depth of who we really need. And this is why um, I think as a, I don't know if it's because I'm a pastor, because I study the Bible all the time, but I, I, when I choose to go after um, anything in this life as if it's going to make me happy, I, I, in the back of my mind, I know, oh, you're not satisfied in God. <laughs> and it just, it, it like exacerbates the sin, right? It's like, it's double. It's not just that I'm, you know, making an idol. It's that I, I'm not as satisfied in God as I want to be. And, and not to, you know, ruin your day too, but that's true of all of us, right? I mean, that's really what's going on. We're not, but at the same time, and this is what I think is really uh we tend as Christians to think that we should all, if we just did everything right, that God would give us complete and perfect experience of his presence at every moment. But I don't think that's what God does. He says that, no, here's up here, remember the, the final joy and bliss where you are one with Christ and you're in, in glory, and he puts you here and you have some experience of God, but it's not perfect, <laughs> And he tells you to, and this is going to be the sermon today, he tells you to wait. It's coming. And a big part of your Christian life is saying, oh yeah, I don't, I'm not entirely happy. I'm not entirely satisfied with my relationship with God. I'm not entirely who I want to be. I don't quite like my situation, but you know what? God has promised good to me and I'm going to wait for it. Instead of what I think coveting does, I'm going to go try to get it for myself. That's the difference between the two. Um, so do we wait upon God? Um, those of you who know the catechism question on sanctification... What does, how does the catechism define sanctification? Anybody? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby, something to do with Christ, by the merit of Christ and the working of the Spirit, we are enabled... to more and more, and then it's going to be two things. She's got her <laughs> Die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Uh, so, you know, dying to, to coveting, dying to the evil desires, and more yearning for and waiting upon that which is good. That's sanctification. And it is progressive, and it is not perfect in this life. So, um, yeah.
Okay, so this being said, oh, we've got to, go ahead. Uh, just a comment. Uh, on your, I think what you left out of that list on the board uh -oh. is, is the damage that coveting does to oneself. Mm. It's incredibly self-destructive, and people tend to get away from the thought that what we all deserve and merit is the second death. Therefore, we have many things to be thankful for mm -hmm. and very little to complain about. That's good. Well, they're certainly related. Jealousy is like, um, I think jealousy more focuses on the lack of love for that other person because you're jealous of what they have. Coveting is just, I want to go take what they have. But they're, they're very much related, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I would argue, based on what I just said, that, that sanctification in your life, you are hoping for, you are yearning for the weakening of evil desire. You're hoping for that, right? You're asking God for that. Weaken the evil desire. You're, you're hoping for and praying for the breaking of the dominion of evil desire, that it no longer controls you, okay? Uh, but the progressive sanctification does not involve the elimination of all evil desire. That will wait till you die. Uh, and and uh, progressive sanctification seems to be not a, I, a, a, it's, it's not a statement of, I will never again act upon evil desire. Because even Christians have to confess their sins regularly, right? <laughs> we do evil things. And so, um, but I do think that progressive sanctification involves trusting in the promises of God uh, it, it involves God giving us a greater love for those around us, um, those sorts of things. So, um, and recognizing that our society promotes coveting. Our society promotes it. If your desire is to get somebody to purchase something, then you want to awaken desire in them for what they didn't even know that they wanted or needed, right? You're trying to uh, make that happen. And with our technology today in artificial intelligence, they can basically hone in on where your desires are. And they will give, they will like stroke Jim in a different place than they'll stroke Leanne, right? They know uh, what it is your weaknesses are to try to promote your dissatisfaction because it's only when you're dissatisfied that you'll want to purchase what they have in order to get you the satisfaction that you want right so that's just I'm not blaming society I'm not saying everybody that you know does advertising is evil some of it is uh, one of our um, students uh one of my roommates in college was in advertising. That was his, he was a marketing major. And we always told him that he was in the major of the devil. 
He'd say, no, God can redeem this. This is a, you know, we can do this right. And we'd say, no, you're of the devil. You know, so, um, <laughs> uh, and then, and then uh, we can take our marketing culture and we can turn Christianity into just one more marketing ploy, right? So uh, I love Riken. This is not just the culture. This is built into our, our natures. Nothing arouses a child's interest in a toy like seeing it in the hands of another child. <laughs> I mean, you can see this is down at the very and the transition from coveting to stealing is almost instantaneous. I love it. Oh, <laughs> you know, just that's just there you go. It's such a clear, nice little picture of in my head of what it is coveting. Oh, you have it. I want it. I'll take it. That's that's it right there. I would say all of us never grow up. <laughs> we might get somewhat better. We're better at hiding it, but we, we all struggle in some way. Yeah, degrees, that's right. Uh, some people don't care at all. They just plunge right into it. This is where I think we have to fight against it. We're struggling with the, the new nature and the Holy Spirit in us, battling to conquer the old nature, which continues to want what it wants. Yes. struggling with small congregations mm-hmm. isn't this in part the application of the business model to churches where <laughs> you're expected to have numbers we were in a church with an excellent pastor who preached for 45 years to a congregation that was never more than 29 people that was the size of the flock god gave him and he understood that and he was content with it yes uh but i'm i'm not um I, i'm not impugning the that they're dissatisfied. I think that they might be, uh, but I think that um, God gives us many promises in the gospel. He says things like, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Well then, if it's plentiful, why am I going out trying to, to sow the harvest and it's not as plentiful as I want? So it, it could be just they're, they're about themselves, and they, they just want to have a big church for their own stroking themselves. And we, we, we actually had a very good sermon yesterday, and we had a nice conversation. And the guy said, um, he was talking about uh, John the Baptist and how humble John the Baptist was. And uh, he, he had a professor tell him sometime, their class, he, sa- he says, everyone just repeat after me, I am not the Christ. And then, and then they, he said, no, 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 more emphatically. You know, he, he does it like five times. I am not the Christ, you know. And, it, and he says it, it just, it was wise because it seeded into my heart that I'm not the Christ, right? And that's, that's a part of what you're saying. But at the same time, there is a, an element of if I am an instrument in his hand, should there be bearing fruit? Because the scriptures seem to indicate that you should be a life of bearing fruit. Now we can dis- you know, discuss what is good fruit. You would say the 25 people were good fruit. And so there's all that. But it's not wrong to say, oh, God gives me promises that are huge. And it doesn't look like I'm experiencing those. Even in your own life. You know, you want your life to matter. Well, 
maybe it doesn't matter quite as much as you thought it was going to matter when you were younger, right? And so you have to be content with that. You have to wean your heart and say, God, what you give is good. That's the kind of thing that's, it's not, it's not easy for any of us. Uh, Jen Wilkin, in her book on the Ten Commandments, advertisements sell us an idea of ourselves as successful, attractive, or powerful. Movies and TV shows define ideal relationships, sell us versions of romance, friendship, and family that are either unattainable or ungodly. Even our friends are selling a version of the good life via their curated uh, social media accounts, tablescapes, vacations, dieting successes, all handpicked for the flattering lens they offer. That's, that's a, I've got several different books on the Ten Commandments, and uh, Jen Wilkins is the only one that has written by a lady, but I've, throughout this study, have benefited much from her thoughts on this, so it's really, it is a good book, yes, so, um, here's a French proverb, I don't usually like, lift up the French, but there we go, a French proverb, What makes us discontented with our condition is the absurdly exaggerated idea we have of the happiness of others. (laughs) Oh, John looks so happy. He looks so content. Why can't I be that content? You know, he just loves getting out there and mowing grass, and he's happy as could be, (laughs) you know, and then you think, boy, I'm not that happy. (laughs) So, um Well, and it could be, it could be. And then, and then if somebody is happier than you, what should you be? Happy for them, <laughs> right? Wow, it's great. Somebody's experiencing happiness. I, I was reading um, in World Magazine this morning of these two Russian guys, uh, and they had come to know Christ, and they had immediately experienced like a, like a real inward transformation. And I was like, wow, that's, that's good, you know, uh, just to... Change, quick change in their lives, because I'm used to, you know, well, it's slow, it's methodical, you know. But if God wants to change somebody quickly, shouldn't I be happy about that? <laughs> so, go ahead, somebody, yeah, Lee? Yeah. Um, I just think we need to keep coming back to the fact, though, that our circumstances, what we have, all of that is not, our joy is not dependent on that. Our happiness is not dependent on the circumstance. That's right. And until you learn that, I mean, the struggle is, I mean, just, is hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's harder than it has to be if you just know where your joy lies. Right. And 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 I I absolutely agree with just what she said because I think it, Paul talks about the secret of contentment, right? In in Philippians four. Um, but I also just want to create attention with that, that even in his strongest saints, so to speak, or his ones that are content, God will sometimes, according to our confession, remove the light of his countenance for a season. So Lee, you could be like, my contentment is not in these things, it's in Christ, and you're going to Christ, and you're experiencing joy in Christ, and then he could actually remove... His countenance, that means like 
your experience of the closeness of God that fills you with joy such that you now feel empty, he can do that for a season, right? I mean, he, he can do, not because of some sin, could be, could, might not be a sin, but he can just remove it and you feel like you're in a, in a tunnel of darkness. And I'll tell you, uh, I was talking several years ago to Joel Beakey about this and he said, he talked about this, this dark night of the soul, and it's, it happens. So as, as Christians, if we present the idea as teachers that, oh, if you can just get yourself fixed on Christ, you will have bliss from here to glory day. And it'll never be bad. That's, that's, that's kind of a false advertisement as well. God will give you bliss, but he can also give you dark nights of the soul. And it doesn't mean he's not, he's not going to leave you there. He's going to bring you out of it, but you can go through those. And it might be by removing something that was solid in your life and steadfast. Uh, I don't know. The, 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 the breadth of things that could happen when he does that is, is it's hard to imagine. Um, but he does. Uh, so. And, that, and that's faith and patience. And that's going to be in the sermon today. That God is telling you, wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Don't leave it. Don't let go of all the, everything that's in Christ. Don't go off after other things. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Because the promise is sure. He will never renege on his, his promises. They will all be yours in Christ. So that's, the, that's what it means to live by faith. But I believe that the dark night of the soul... So here's my, my illustration. This is your experience. This is the future experience. You could be, let's say you're here, and in your experience of the blessing, your cup is, is half, half full. But in this person, this is like um, 95% empty. Okay? So... Um, this is 100% full. This is what God has promised to you. You might be here, or you might be here in your present experience. It doesn't change the promise is here. And that's what you're talking about, Lee, that you can continue to cling to the promise even in the dark time of your heart. God, and I would argue that the person who is clinging to the promise here actually is bringing more glory to God in the, in the fact that you're continuing to trust the promise even though you're in a time of darkness than the person who has been given a lot of experience here. And I can just think, tell you my, I, my own life, when I first became a Christian, because of God's mercy, it seemed like the first several years of my relationship with God, every time I opened the Bible, it was, wow. I mean, it was like things were jumping off the page at me. It was just amazing. If you go to, I've still got my old Bible from that time, and I've got all these notes and comments in the margins, and it's just like, I couldn't, I really couldn't understand somebody opening their Bible and going, I don't know, this is boring. Because it was like, it was just every time, it was just joy. When I first came to Morganton, and it's because I was just becoming Presbyterian, I don't know, maybe that was it. Uh, when I first came to Morganton with Robin, uh, we... 
it was the driest period of my life in the Word of God. It was the most difficult time. I'd open the Bible, and it just was like, well, you know. And, and, and at that time, I was like, you know what? I have experienced it in the past, and I know it's true, and I am just going to continue to dig into this Bible until God reopens it and makes it more exciting again, right? And so, and I would say that the rest of my life has is, is been somewhere like here. And often as I study the Word, I get the best insights into God's Word right on the cusp of going, ah, I think I should just chuck it for today. And then, ah, let's study a little bit longer. And then, and then it's like, oh, wow, look at what I didn't see just 10 minutes ago. You know, so the God, I, he wants us to live by faith. And in the moments where you're not experiencing it is the greatest opportunity to live by faith, in my opinion. So. That's right. That's a, that, Absolutely. And I think that's part of why God doesn't give us all of it right by ourselves because he wants us to lean upon other people too. Go ahead, Chris. It's not just a great picture of the resurrection. Mm. Oh, that's a great statement. Follow it up a little bit. <laughs> we're, we're dying yes. to ourselves. Yes. We're waiting on the power of the resurrection on a daily basis. On a daily basis, that's right sanctification, more and more dying under sin, and rising to righteousness, basically, living under righteousness. So that's the resurrection. That's right. <sighs> okay. You ask hard questions. Um, Well, how many people have studied the Westminster Confession chapter on assurance? It is like the best chapter in the whole confession, if you ask me. <laughs> I tell people um, that when I was on the examination committee bringing in new pastors, my, one of my questions would always be, what does the confession say is a proper assurance of salvation? And, and pastors, they'd be like, uh... I'm like, I don't want your understanding. I just want to know what the confession says. And after giving it to them, they'd always be like, yeah, that's really good. Uh, number one, the confession tells you that assurance is not the same thing as faith. And that seems a little bit off because the scripture says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But but I think when they're talking about assurance, it's like this feeling of uh, peace that everything is good, you know, uh, that I'm okay, that I'm really saved, and I'm going to be in heaven. That sense of security that you have. Faith is not the same thing as that. Faith is the action of trusting. Um, so uh, the illustration is, and I have, always have to preface this because Southerners don't ever have frozen ice ponds, but in, the, in Ohio we have frozen ice ponds, right? So... And if you're a kid, you're like, it's 31 degrees. Do you think the pond is thick enough ice that we can go play on it? You know, and we had our ice skates we put on. We play ice hockey and different things. And, and mom would say, oh, I better wait another day. Or, you know, not thick enough or whatever. And we would take a hatchet and we would, you know, dig a hole out. And if it was two inches thick, plenty. You know, if it was like four inches thick, you could drive a car on it. I mean, it's just, you know, but if it's only an inch thick, you could go through it, right? So, uh, so 
let's just assume, uh, we'll put Robin and I on the thing here. So um, I am a reckless kind of person. So, okay, we've, we've checked in this one spot on the pond that it's two inches thick. So the whole pond must be good. Let's just go out and play, right? And I jump out there and I'm running around and feeling really good. Well, I didn't check that over there. It's not that thick and boom, down through the ice. So I was absolutely assured but my assurance didn't help me because I fell through the ice, okay? Robin, on the other hand, being much more cautious, she says, uh, can we cut the ice over there and check over there? And then even when we check the ice in different places, she still says, let's just walk around a little bit and let's be cautious about this. And there's, there's a little bit of fear going on inside of her. Well, the fact that she's still out on the ice is faith. Even if she's got plenty of doubts on the inside. So if I'm talking to someone, um, and, and he won't mind me using him as an example, uh, Olin Coleman, an elder who was like one of the most godly men that I know, uh, a good friend of mine, elder in this church, he dies. Well, shortly before his death, he is struggling with doubt and fear as to when he's going to face Jesus Christ. Now, Olin knows the gospel. He's trusting in the righteousness of Christ. He's not trusting in himself. He knows this, but he's still feeling doubt and fear at that time. What do you think I did? Did I scold him for feeling those doubts and fear? No, I understand the confession is just, oh, point him to faith. Olin, is Jesus not strong enough to save you? Is he, is he going to be able to save you? Yes. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Cast yourself on Jesus. Doesn't matter what you're feeling in your doubts right now. Trust in Jesus. Cast yourself on him. And that was one of the most beautiful things because I always looked at Olin as helping me so at the very end of his life as a pastor, to be able to help him keep his eyes fixed on Jesus was such a beautiful thing. So, um, so first off, the assurance and faith are not the same thing. You don't have to give people perfect assurance. You don't have to say, oh, you should never doubt. Oh, don't do that. You know, no, doubts are often good things. I usually tell young people who have grown up in the church, well, it's, it's good every once in a while to doubt whether you're saved because <laughs> it pushes you to actually make your salvation more real. So assurance, faith, different things. But assurance, God says that we should have assurance. He wants us to have assurance. He says there's three legs of the table, or at least the confession does, and I'm pretty convinced, I'm, I'm very convinced that this is what the Bible wants you to hold in tension, all three legs. So if this is your assurance right here, whew, I have peace, I have contentment that I'm saved. Um, what, are the, what are the three legs of assurance? You should be able to give me at least one of them. Yes. Trust in the promises. That's what I did with Olin. I just said, is Jesus, did he, uh, is he your righteousness? Did he earn for you all the promises? Trust in him. That's a part of it. There's two others. Uh, okay, so what he's done, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this connection. Uh, but you're thinking outward. That would, remembering what he's done, I think would be um, his faithfulness to give you part of the promises even in your past. So remember that. So I think that's, that's true, but I'd put it in trust in the promises of God. So he's Again, I would, I would put it into here. I, 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 his sovereignty, um, that he's able to save me. Yes. 
the Spirit. So um, this is what we call sanctification. Um, You have some evidence of the Spirit's working in your life. And what we're talking about here is the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You're, You're actually seeing the fruit of the Spirit worked out in your life. Uh, and I would add to the fruit of the Spirit, I guess you can do that, uh, uh, sorrow over lack of the fruit of the Spirit. So part of the working of the Spirit, one of the first things the Spirit does, is shows you that you're not fully bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and you have sorrow over not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So that's, I, that's actually a work of the Spirit, is to give you that sorrow. So this is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, See, trust in the promises is looking outward. It's not looking inward. But trust in, like, thinking about the Holy Spirit fruit in your life, that's, that's evaluation inward, okay? And you can see how if you only trusted in what was outward but had no connection of what's inward, this is where Jesus says, oh, many will say to me, did we not say, Lord, Lord? And he'll say, I never knew you right? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I mean, there's plenty of verses that, like, challenge you, examine your heart before communion, right? I mean, there's, uh, confess your sins, all those kind of things going on. So, there is a sense of assurance that you should be inwardly focused on, is there fruit of the Spirit in my life? But if you entirely focus on this, you will never be assured because <laughs> you can always see imperfections. You always see where you don't, oh yeah, I, didn't, I only prayed for five minutes because I was bored with prayer today. And therefore, I must not be a Christian because I didn't have the full enjoyment of sitting in God's presence for an hour, hour and a half, right? Sweet hour of prayer turned into five minutes and I was ready to quit. And so, you, if you only focus on this, you'll never have true assurance. But if you only focus on this, the Bible says you can deceive yourself. Galatians says that uh, uh, um, you will reap what you sow. The one who sows to please the sinful nature will reap destruction, and the one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. So you can't forget this entirely. And so this assurance, you're like, oh yeah, I am still a scumbag. I'm not exactly who I want to be, but... I do see God working in me. I'm not the man I used to be. I am growing in Christ. I do want to yearn for him. And so you, you look at that and go, wow. And I am trusting in Christ. I'm not trusting in myself. Those sorts of things, okay? No. The third leg. What? Nope. I'd put that in this. Maybe both of these could be profession, but... Well, you better have assurance after the resurrection. <laughs> no, it's not the resurrection. It's in Romans 8. This is the one Presbyterians, I always say Presbyterians don't like to talk about this one. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's before that. No, before that. <laughs> Leanne, just, I want you to feel it, you know. <laughs> so in, in, um, in Romans 8, it says about our adoption... It says the Spirit testifies with our spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies with your spirit 
that you are a child of God. This is, the, this is what I call just the, the feeling. This is why Presbyterians struggle with this one. This is just the sense that I belong to God. I, I remember when I first was um, understanding the gospel in high school and coming, I was praying for like weeks, weeping on my bed. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus is who I need. Will you forgive me? Will you save me? And then, I don't know, somewhere along that two-week period, it was just like this sense of presence came over me. You are forgiven, and you are mine, and I do love you. And it was more than just me trusting in the promises. There was this sense of the Holy Spirit communicating with my spirit that I did belong to God. Now, do I always feel that? (laughs) Uh Uh-uh. This is what I talk about the dark night of the soul. Sometimes you feel like, God left me. He's gone. Where are you, God? And this is a common experience of the psalmist as well. But that you can't get out of the fact that this is a factor. And you should actually yearn for this. Do you think Moses, when he was um, in the little tent of meeting, talking with God face to face, that he like, doubted that he belonged to God? I think he was happy as could be in that presence. God's talking with me. He loves me. You know, there's a sense of just peace there. And I think it's okay for us to yearn for that as Christians. Now, our foundation is this. And I always, what I, um, Dr. Kelly taught me, and I hear Clark say it a lot, in all of your struggles, finish with Christ. And in all of your struggles, you can say, oh, I'm not experiencing what I want to experience right now. The fruit of the Spirit's not what I would like it to be right now. But I'm casting myself on Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. So this finishing with Christ is, I think, what we're called to do. Um, do all the other things uh, in your assurance, but, but finish with Christ. Um, so, so that's where I think that in all this... Uh, The, when, you, when you wash it all out, God has promised salvation in Christ, and I'm going to keep casting myself on him. And that's, that's where I am um, in my life. Olin Coleman? He might have just been uh, missing a sense of God's presence. Maybe he thought that at the end he would feel closer to God at that moment. Maybe, maybe he was experiencing an attack of Satan at that time, trying to, to just, you know, shake him. Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe because, you know, the closer you get to the light, the more you feel the weight of your own sins. Maybe he had uh, thought that he had uh, dealt with sins uh, more fully than he had, and he gets to that moment, and he's feeling like, I haven't been a good husband. I haven't, you know, I don't know what was all going on inside of him. Uh, so at that time, I just, just pointed him to Christ. So, so. There is a book, and we'll close with this right now. There's a book called uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. And um, uh, I've read it once. I think my wife always has it on the table. So there's a sense where I'm like, oh, I should go back and read that again. Um, But in that book, he says that we should have a proper 
moaning, uh, even bringing our dissatisfaction or complaint to God, uh, and even at times to our friends, uh, not in a grumbling kind of complaining way, but just like, oh, I want more. You know, to talk about that and to yearn, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a bad thing. Uh, and doing all that we can to try to improve our life is, is okay as well. So, um, anyway, it's a good, good book. And uh, we will um, we'll finish next week with coveting, and we'll go, um, after that, we'll go into uh, numbers. And because Danny's not here yet, <laughs> you have to at least do the first class or two with me with the numbers. And then, then you can all, like, shoot over to his class, and uh, he's going to do something really exciting on eschatology when he gets back. So, anyway, uh, <clears throat> What's that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Of all goodness. Well, well, it does, but it does, but remember, um, every good and perfect gift comes from God in, in, in heaven above. But just, re- just saying that, that uh, God is the source of all good doesn't mean that he's given us all good in this life. So, so again, you're waiting for 100% goodness to be experienced. And so uh, your life is full of suffering, uh, pain, emptiness, uh, struggle, I mean, all those things, and they are mediated to you by God in order to uh, glorify himself because you keep trusting in the promise to maybe wean you of your dependence upon those things. Uh, I've always said that um, the more that God gives you, the harder it is to find your joy in him rather than in the gift, right? So if you have uh, Christmas Day, Mom and dad would give us all these presents. We almost forgot mom and dad for most of that day because we were so focused on the presents, right? And then as time goes on, you're like thankful to mom and dad again. But, but so like the same thing happens with us. The more that he gives you, the more that it's a temptation to no longer need him. And I think that's the glory of heaven is that you will be able to experience all of these good gifts and not uh, dethrone God from the very center of your, of your life. So... Perfect bliss in all the gifts that he gives you, but then also perfect balance of putting God first and making him the, the heart of the joy that you have. So, but in this life, pain, suffering, difficulty, I mean, he just, that's, a, that, that's just every experience of every person. Right, it works together to the good. Because any, God could not give you in, not one drop of true blessing in your life if he had not first removed his wrath from you. And only Christ removes the wrath of God. So any, we talk about that Christ is the fountain of every blessing that you receive. There is no blessing that you get apart from Christ. So, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it just tells me that my reliance on Christ for true blessing is is forever. It just never uh, need him at every moment. 
Um, whether it's the blessing of enjoying a nice marriage with Robin, whether it's the, the blessing of eternal forgiveness of sin, whatever the blessing is, it all has to come through Christ, both temporal and eternal. You want to follow that up? I don't know if I answered your question. Okay. <laughs> all right, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this class and for the questions. And Lord, we don't want to be coveters. Uh, we know that our old nature loves to covet, uh, but I, we also have been given new hearts in Christ that yearn for and love your holiness, your righteousness, and to rest in you, to trust in you. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage our faith, help us to be loving of other people, to, to be a blessing to other people, to not be selfish, help us to not be um, takers but givers. In Jesus' name, amen.